Um, let me invite you, take your Bible, Luke chapter 15. Um, we'll be parking on this chapter for some time. Now, there, listen, there's three crucial parables. There's three crucial stories in Luke chapter 15. The third of those stories is probably one of the most well-known stories or parables of Jesus, and that's the story of what we've come to call the prodigal son. We can't really separate any of the three stories because they all are built together, and so I want to begin to help you understand the context in which Jesus was uh, sharing this lesson, sharing these three stories, because if you separate the reason that Jesus gave these stories from the stories themselves, the stories mean a whole lot less. In fact, I, I think that that's one of the um, that's one of the things that us as believers that sometimes we're prone to do. We kind of read through the text and we just want to get to, in our mind, the good stuff, the things that we consider important, and so we push off to the side some of the other stuff, so I don't want to do that as we're doing a little bit of study. Along the way this morning, I'm hoping that you'll learn a few tools for your toolbox as you read your Bible by yourself. I hope that that is something that you do regularly. If you don't do that, let me encourage you to build that into your daily and weekly living because how else can you get to know God other than reading and studying the Word of God that is given to us through His, His Holy Scriptures? Um, just kind of as a, another cheap, uh, shameless plug, if you benefit from these three tools, you'll benefit even more from the Bible study that we're going to be doing during the Sunday school time of how to study the Bible. So that these are just shameless plugs. Um, there's three points that I want you to be able to remember, and you'll find those kind of started anyhow on your handout. There's three points that I'd like you to remember as we're reading through Luke chapter 15. These are these are interpretive points. How am I going to read this Bible, read this passage, or read these parables in, in a way that I can understand them and, and be, begin to make some sense out of them? So the first one, the first one, you ready? First one is what we call historical clarity. You are reading a document when you read the Bible. You're reading something that's thousands of years old. And, and so you cannot separate history from how you read the Bible. You, you see, a lot of times, one of the tragedies I think that many folks want to do is they, they want to read the Bible and they want to interpret it in light of modern context. Well, you know, we, we need to do that, but that's not our first step. We need to discover what did it mean to the original audience. The original audience had, had something going on when Jesus gave that lesson, or whenever that lesson was given in the Old Testament or the New Testament. For example, when you read parables, parables are kind of like political cartoons. You know what I'm saying? You can read up the, or open up the newspaper and you can read a political cartoon. A political cartoon is a cartoon that only makes sense in light of the context of the environment, right? Have you have you ever looked at, uh, in some of the, our kids' history books and seen some old political cartoons from like the 40s or even older? Like some of them are just kind of like, well, that doesn't, that isn't very funny, ha-ha. Well, not, may not be very funny, ha-ha to you, but to the original audience, it was very funny, ha-ha. 
because they understood and they felt and they sensed the environment in which they lived. So, there's a little bit to where our task as we read the Bible is to begin to understand the environment that the original lesson was given. Parables, they're forms of speech. It's like a short story trying to illustrate a specific point. Once you understand what the parable meant to its original audience, the parable's always going to mean the same thing. It's always going to have that same lesson throughout all time because Jesus had a particular meaning when he communicated that lesson. Parables have a real fixed meaning. So, okay, so historical clarity. Next one is contextual location. Contextual location. Where is this text located in relation to the overall story and why? You know, that's, that's really important when you try to read the Bible. You can't just isolate a particular passage, which how many of you have heard that where two or three are gathered in my name, that I'm there among them? How many of you have heard that in the context of a prayer meeting? You know that when the Lord says that when two or you know, that means nothing about a prayer meeting. Do you know that what it's all about is actually discipline? It's actually about two witnesses having something established, and if there's two things that are established, it becomes legal and binding. But how many of us have heard it used in that way? Well, that's because what has happened is they've isolated one or two little verses and then translated it to mean something that it doesn't mean at all. And so that's why it's very important for us to begin to understand, well, what's going on around this text? What, what is this verse take place in, the, in scope of the bigger lesson? For Luke chapter 15, the location of these three parables tells us the high value that Luke, who's the original author of them, placed on the particular parables. The key verse to understanding all of the book of Luke or the gospel of Luke is Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. If you read the gospel of Luke in light of Luke chapter 19 verse 10, you're going to understand the entire gospel of Luke. And then even furthermore, when we look at the central location of Luke chapter 15, and we see these three parables, we see how they're at the center and they become a central value of the particular lesson that Luke wants to communicate. They form a high point of all the other parables. By the way, if you go from Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, you don't have to do this, but just so you know, Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 51, all the way to Luke chapter 19, verse 27, you'll count 20 different parables. You know what's the center of those parables? Luke 15. It's because that's the high point, that's the central meaning of all those parables. By the way, you might find it interesting to know that those 10 chapters make up what we call Jesus' uh, Judean ministry. He, he ministered uh, in Judea during that time. You may find it interesting to know that the Bible records that Jesus taught around 60 parables during his ministry, and parables account for one-third of all of Jesus' recorded teachings. One-third of Jesus' teachings are given to us in parable form, so understanding how to read parables is pretty important to understanding your Bible. 
Last thing, and this is usually where people want to jump to before we even start. They, when, we, when we tend to read the Bible, we want to jump to this last thing, typically, and that's the interpretive layers. There's layers of interpretation to any parable. Well, there's, there's three layers particularly, and particularly that apply to these three parables, and I want to give them to you. Some of these you might be saying, Brad, I don't need to know how to do it. Well, yes, you do. You need to know how to do it, so that way you can do it all by yourself. I would rather teach you how to fish than just to give you a fish. You know what I mean? There's the face value of any parable. When you read a parable, there's, there's the face value. You can read it, and it has a pretty simple meaning to it, and that meaning we can catch pretty quickly, typically. Often there's a simple lesson that can be understood without much work, and that's the face value layer. But there's two other layers. There's the ethical implications. Every parable has these fascinating layers. There's the face value, and then there's this, there's almost this quandary or this question. For, for Luke chapter 15, let me make a little bit of sense to it, okay? <clears throat> There's the first part, there's the first parable in Luke chapter 15 about this shepherd. And this shepherd has a flock of a hundred. And one goes astray. And he leaves the 99 to go get the one. And there becomes an ethical question saying, well, what about the 99? Like, how long was he gone? And man, he's not taking care of the 99 because he's off off taking care of the others, and was he really a good shepherd for leaving all those other ones so that he could go get that one? And there's all kinds of these fascinating, fun implications, and we'll study more of that as we start to study the dynamics and understand the, what happened with shepherding during Jesus' time, because everybody who originally heard that parable would have a, a immediately understood those contexts because it was part of their culture. Well, it's not a part of our culture, so we have to we have to do a little bit of work. So there's ethical implications. And then there's these things. There's the theological truths. Theological truths. Each of the parables teaches us something about the nature of God. Teaches us something about the character of God, who God is. They teach us something about Jesus Christ as the Son of God. They teach us something about the attitudes that we as followers of Christ should possess, the things that we should think about, how we should understand and look at the world around us. You see, parables are packed with so much, so much information and so much uh, teachings uh, spiritual teachings, and just a, a brief economy of words. And at the end of the day, the lessons, the parables that we learn through these parables you are more useful than just intellectual cumin. You know, the point of knowing a parable isn't just so that you can say, oh, so see how smart I am? Or, or the theological truths that come to us as we study these parables, it's much more than just intellectual, or intellectual knowledge right? It's so that we can know who our Creator is. It's so that we can know who our Savior is. And a byproduct of having this information of knowing more about our Creator God, knowing more about our Savior, we can therefore have a better relationship with Him. We can know what He wants of us. We can know what He expects of us. We can know how we can commune with Him and, and live with Him and, and have fellowship with Him. They teach us how to worship Him, 
they're designed to strengthen our relationship with our holy God and our precious Savior. That's what good Bible study does. Now, I hope that those are good little things to put in your back pocket as we study these three parables. And if they're beneficial to you, I I guarantee that the Sunday school class that we're going to do, I hope that it will be beneficial. So, with our remaining time, I want to look at three verses. Three simple verses. And these three simple verses would be verses that you and I would typically maybe, we would read quickly so that we could, in our mind, get on to the good stuff. So, if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 through verse 3, right? Simple, quick verses, but let's just take a second and park our minds on it. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. Pretty simple, yeah? Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes by the way, some translations, if your, your translation, if you have an NIV, some of them will say experts of the law or lawyers or, or something along those lines for the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes, well, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners, and he even eats with them. So, he told them this parable. Actually, he tells them three parables consecutively because of this. Now, you might say, okay, so I get it. Jesus has made some people mad because of what he's doing. Jesus seems to have a habit of that. Isn't that fascinating? Have you ever thought about this? Here you have Jesus, who is God incarnate, and you would think that Jesus would be a peacemaker no matter where he went, right? And that he wouldn't want to upset anybody. But it seems like everywhere where he went, God incarnate made people mad. Have you ever thought about that? So, I find it fascinating that sometimes when we proclaim the Word of God and we make people mad, we just, it's okay. Because it's fascinating that Jesus is teaching these truths, and what ends up happening is people are mad at Him. But you got to see the degree, the magnitude that these people are mad, because these people are not just mad. These people are absolutely out of their mind, angry at Jesus. In fact, that's what ends up getting Jesus killed at the end of the day. And these couple verses just seem all entirely so simple. But to understand the parables, let's understand why Jesus told the parables. So let me break down a few things for you. Let me help you ask, who in the world are these Pharisees? Well, these Pharisees, and I've already given you the answer there, or at least part of the answer, the Pharisees, they're a religious group, and they developed about 150 years before Jesus ever came onto the scene. And you've got to get why the Pharisees, that's this group of religious people, the religious Jews, even came onto the scene. You've got you to gotta go with me a little bit to understand the history. You, you see, Israel had been what we call a vassal nation. They had been a nation that had been subjected to to rule by all of these additional empires. Well, if you go back and if you've had Old Testament grow with me, you, you, you know that Egypt ruled over the Israelites, right? And then after the Egyptians, do you remember that horrible, brutal empire called the Assyrians, right? 
And that's where the, the ten tribes were dispersed in the northern part of Israel and dispersed throughout the known empire. That was the Assyrians. By the way, if you know that information, you know where the New Testament Samaritans came from, from that uh, diaspora. Uh, so they had Egypt and the Assyrians. Well, then you have the Babylonians. Remember, we did a study a while back from the time of Esther, and it was they were taken into captivity, and that's why they were even in Persia. In fact, that's where it happens after uh, ba Babylon. You have Persia, right? You have the Persian Empire, and after the Persian Empire, you have this empire that's on the scene for a very short period of time with Alexander the Great, right? You have the Greek Empire, and then you have the development of Rome from Romulus and Remus, right? And they were ruled then by the Roman Empire. And what has happened is as Israel has been ruled over by all of these empires, these empires have superimposed all of their religious ideology and all of their faith ideals upon the Jewish people. And what has happened is the Jewish people have bought into all this idolatry, and so they have forgotten and really just very confused as to who God is. Because it makes just natural sense. By the way, don't you think that that's kind of what's happening today is so many people are confused of who God is is because of the world's ideals are creeping in upon them. And so they think that God is just this warm, fuzzy, squeeze me bear God and he has no justice, he has no holiness, he has no righteousness, right? Um, God helps those who help themselves. By the way, that's not anywhere in the Bible, right? People have all these wrong ideas. Well, why do people have wrong ideas? Because they're getting all these ideas from outside of the Bible, and that's exactly what happened during this time. So much so that God sent Israel into captivity for 70 years as a discipline for their disobedience. And then there's this religious group that comes onto the scene that says, wait a second, we have really, really messed up. We need to get back to the Torah. We need to get back to the Mosaic Law. We need to get back to their Bible at their time. And we need to teach people to obey the Bible. You know what that group's name is? The Pharisees. Now listen, doesn't that sound awfully good? It sounds really good. And it started out really good. In about 155 B.C., when, when the Pharisees were just beginning to develop, it did start out really good. They wanted people to get back to the Bible. They wanted obedience. What happens is oftentimes what happens even within churches today is out of this pure, wonderful effort of trying to get people back to the Bible, they become religious. So religious that they start making rules, right? And in fact, the Pharisees had 614 laws. 365 thing of those laws were things that you shouldn't do, and the rest were things that you should do. Now, how many of us are going to be able to even remember those laws? Well, that's the point. Well, people couldn't remember the laws, they couldn't obey the laws, and here were the Pharisees then, by the time that Jesus comes onto the scene saying, we're very good. See how good we are? You can't even obey. You can't even remember the laws. But we, we obey the law. And that's what the Pharisees 
by the time Jesus comes onto the scene, the attitudes that they had started to possess in their hearts. Everybody else who wasn't a Pharisee, everybody else who they didn't deem to be pursuing God to their standards was what they called people of the land, okay? This is their terms. The Pharisees called these people the people of the land, and there was such a barrier between the Pharisees and the people of the land that they didn't want anything to do with them. And in fact, we have some historical documents and some things I would like to share from you from history that teach us a little bit about the attitudes of the Pharisees. They leave us with several regulations. Here's one of them. Uh, this is one of the regulations of the Pharisees. When a man is one of the people of the land and trust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not appoint him guardian of an orphan, do not make him custodian of charitable funds, and do not accompany him on a journey. A, a Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man, the people of the land, or to even be close or have any interaction with him at all. It was clear that the, the job of the Pharisees, the aim of the Pharisees, was to avoid anyone that they didn't deem worthy of their presence. In fact, here's another fascinating attitude of the Pharisees that's record, left to us by historical records. A, a Pharisee would say... There will be, you ready? There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. That's the attitude of the Pharisees. They wanted nothing to do. They took joy, and we would say sadistic joy, when regular common people had injuries. Or they would say, see, you're getting what you deserve because you do not obey God. Because you're a sinner. This is exactly why you're suffering and experiencing the bad things, which Jesus has to combat during his entire ministry. That's the attitudes of the Pharisees. That's why it's so crucial that when we read those first couple verses and Jesus is hanging out with sinners and even a step below sinners are these rebellious people, these traitors, these people, the Jews who are in bed with Rome from the Pharisees' perspective, these tax collectors. By the way, did you know that Jesus had one of his apostles who was a tax collector? We have a gospel written from him, Matthew. Levi, which is his Jewish name, or his Israeli name, was a tax collector. Well, how about these scribes? Who were the scribes? So we see how bad these, from, from our perspective, how mean and just rotten these Pharisees were. And it started, all, it's fascinating, because in 154, 155 BC, that all started out with good attitudes and good intentions, but by the time that over a century had taken place, they'd really transformed that from something good and holy into something really, really ungodly. So who are the scribes? Who are these people that when you and I read about them, they're called the experts or the teachers of the law? Uh, later accounts the experts of the law or the teachers of the law, we still have experts of the law and teachers of the law in, in our world today. You know, what the, you know what they're called? 
rabbis. The, the person that leads the, the Jewish synagogue, you know what he's called? He's called a rabbi. In Jesus' day, he would have been considered a teacher of the law or an expert of the law. These scribes, they're Jewish religious group that are considered to be experts in the Mosaic law. R- really experts, we would say experts in the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. In fact, these experts, these rabbis, knew the Old Testament in such a way it would just scare us. They had to memorize, memorize every word of the Old Testament. Part of their training was that the the person who was teaching them, Gamaliel, for example, he was a rabbi's rabbi. He was considered what we call a rabbon. He was the one who teaches rabbis. He was the one who taught the experts of the law or the teachers of the law or these lawyers. Uh, Gamaliel, who also taught, by the way, the apostle Paul, Gamaliel would approach one of his students, and he would start to quote uh, Job. And he would just quote Job and stop randomly and say, finish the rest of it. How many of us could do that with our Bible? Isn't that crazy? That's, That's how well these scribes knew what we call the Old Testament. Translations call them um, uh, experts of the law, scribes or some translations, teachers of the law, lawyers or other translations. So now every time that you read that, you're going to remember that, right? Say yes. They're the Jewish theologians of their day. These were the people that when Jesus was tested, right, when they wanted to entrap Jesus, you know who they went to? They went to the scribes. These were the people who knew what they knew what they knew, right? They were the the best uh, of of the best and the brightest, and they knew the theological implications, supposedly, of all these things. The scribes, and, and what they were is they were a special class of Pharisees, and there were even some that were Sadducees. So you have these classes that arise, uh, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. They all developed before Jesus' time. And out of those, there was kind of the best and the brightest of those. And these were what we call the scribes or the lawyers or the experts in the law. So if you thought the Pharisees hated people, because the Pharisees hang out and they're the common man's pastor, so to speak. They lived in the communities where most people lived, and they connected with most people. And if you thought that the Pharisees didn't like people, the scribes were even worse. Because they thought that they knew every single thing that God wanted. As part of their laws, they had that you could only take so many steps in fact, if you go to Israel with me, if you've been to Israel with me, or if you're going to Israel with me maybe later, um, uh, you'll see that there's these cords that are around uh, certain uh, towns. And those cords are placed there because that's a Sabbath day walk. You can only have so many steps on the Sabbath, which is the Saturday, right? Sabbath has always been, always will be Saturday. These are the kinds of laws that the scribes 
would, that they would watch over. They were kind of the policemen. You took two more steps in what you were supposed to. Man, I can tell you don't love God at all. In fact, I bet you God hates you because of that. This is the spiritual oppression that the people are receiving from their religious teachers. Do you hear any grace in those things? No, absolutely not. What I hear is religiosity, having a form of godliness but denying its power as Jesus will teach, but I'm getting ahead of myself. These these scribes are a very religious-looking group from the outside. And And when they see Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, see Jesus mingling with tax collectors and sinners, here's this Jesus that is supposed to be representing God, who's supposed to be a teacher, who's supposed to be teaching in the synagogues, and he teaches in the temple, and look what he does. Doesn't he know his Bible? Jesus knows their hearts, he knows their minds, he knows their attitudes, he knows their spiritual oppression, he knows their demonic attitudes. And so what he does is he says, I get what you're thinking. Let me tell you a couple stories. And that's the context in which these three stories are told. At the end of the day, the Pharisees the scribes, and we can even throw in there the Sadducees. You know what they are? They're joy killers. Have you ever been around somebody who's a joy killer? I'm not talking about kill joy. I'm talking about a true joy killer. Someone, someone who, they're even worse than Eeyore, right? It's not that there's just a cloud that's always over them. It's not enough for them to be miserable you have to be miserable with them, right? Misery likes company. Have you ever been around folks who have that attitude? Now imagine what's happening with the scribes and the Pharisees. They're taking away any joy that the people of God could ever possibly have because they're saying you can never live up. In fact, you know, isn't that the beauty of grace? We can't live up. None of us can. Have you got the memo? We're all sinners that fall very far short of God's standards. Enter God's grace. Enter Jesus Christ, who has now made a way for us to be restored. These people, the the Sadducees, uh, the Pharisees, the scribes, they absolutely despised the common people despised them. They had every appearance of godliness, but had no clue of what God was really after. And don't you find that sad? Don't you find it sad? Have you ever met somebody who seems to know so much of the Word of God, but yet they still just don't know what God is after? Have you ever met someone like that? It's sad, it's scary, it's interesting, yet people can know the Bible but have no clue what God is just really after. These people could quote the Bible better than you or I any day of the week, and they had no clue what the God of all creation was really after, even though they knew His Word. 
Well, I think that there's some good practical lessons in that. You see, 2 Timothy 3.5, there's a warning that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy, and he talks about people who have a form of godliness but deny its power. By the way, this is not talking about unchurched people. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about churched people. It's talking about people who have maybe gone to church their whole life or to synagogue in its time. And they, from, from everything on the outside, they look like they want to please God, but their heart attitude, eh, it's far from God. Have you ever met someone like that? Boy, I have. Breaks my heart. There are people who look religious, but on the inside, Jesus makes pretty strong accusations against the Pharisees. He called them just good-looking tombstones. Do you guys remember that? Jesus calls them in, in Matthew 23, 27, whitewashed tombs. Now, what that really means is just like everything on the outside is nice and polished and looks good, but on the inside, you're rotting, and the reality is, is you're spiritually going to hell in a handbasket, and you don't know it. That's the condition of the Pharisees. And I think that I'm afraid the reality is, is there's a lot of folks who have been churched their whole lives, and they know what it means to be churched, but they, they don't get the things of God. Well, how about this one? Isaiah 29, 13. Isaiah prophesied about a people, or prophesied against a people, who worshiped God with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. Uh, have you ever met somebody who knows all the right churchy things to say, but their heart is so far from God? It's removed from the true worship of what God is really after. That's the Pharisees. They, they knew so much, but they knew so little. These people are the real joy killers. They assassinate the joy of God because they don't understand the heart of God. You know, and I'm afraid, I'm, I'm personally concerned that churches across the world have a lot of that in them. People who assassinate the joy and the good pleasures of God because they really, they think that they know what God wants. Hey, they don't have a clue. So I guess there's a couple practical take-home lessons just with two real simple verses. Let me kind of share a couple thoughts that I had. You might think of some others. These are some ones that I, I thought. I found myself being confronted as I was studying these, these two verses. And you would think, oh, these are two verses, pretty simple, right? We can move on to the good stuff. But to me, when I read and studied these two verses, I thought, man, I'm confronted with as I look at the text, it's like a mirror, right? It, we peer into it, and it peers back into us, and it helps to examine our own hearts and our own minds. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, kind of searching us and seeing if there be any crooked or wicked way in us. A couple things that I thought of. Am I a Pharisee or a scribe? And maybe, maybe it's good to ask yourself that same question. Are you a Pharisee or a scribe? And what do I mean by that? I mean that are, are you so stuck on the religiosity of stuff that you, you've missed the heart of God? Have you been churched for so long that when somebody comes to church and they look different, right? 
than what you have built up in your mind? Or there's a song that sounds different than the one that you grew up with? Or there's something that just doesn't seem to set because it's your personal preference? How do you communicate your personal attitude? You know, what ends up happening, I think, at times is sometimes churched folks become the Pharisees and the scribes because somehow we've put in these religious regulations up there that aren't a part of what God really wants. We've missed the heart of God. Sometimes, I think, and as we're going to learn through this series, we can be the joy killers when somebody comes to Christ and wants to know more about Christ, and here's what we have, but I know their past. I know their attitudes. I know what they've done. Well, so does God, duh. But don't you want to celebrate that God is doing something in their lives? If you don't want to celebrate, if you don't want to rejoice over what God is doing, you're missing the heart of God. Have, have you ever, I've thought about some of this. What if there's somebody in he, that comes to Praise Point? In Praise Point, we have a lot of new people that come regularly. And, and what if somebody's sitting in your seat? We laugh. We do. What if somebody's sitting in your seat? Have you ever got down and looked? Is there a name underneath that seat that says it's yours? No. You know, what if this place was packed to where you can't find a seat? Are you going to grumble? Rather, the attitude should be, praise God. Check that out. Look at what God is doing. There's somebody sitting in my seat. Praise Jesus. But, you know, it's fascinating because sometimes what ends up happening is we say, don't they know who I am? That's where I sit. Since when? Well, since the church was built. Okay, well, find a new seat. And when somebody sits there, find another seat. When somebody takes your parking space, rejoice. And isn't it fascinating? These things are just such small, tiny little attitudes. But but you know what they are? They are our attitudes, aren't they, at times? We need to rejoice and take great joy over what God is doing. And not just say, this church is growing and I don't know everybody in here. Praise Jesus. God is doing good things. How about this? Building on that, do you really get, do I really get the heart of God? What is God really after? You know what God has always been after? Always been after, all the way back to the garden. He's always been after an obedient people who love him. Do you know that's what he wanted in the Old Testament? That's what he wanted in the New Testament? That's what he wants today. He wants people who are obedient to him and who love him, and pursue him, and want others to know him. Is that your heart's desire? Is that your passion and your attitude? Do you really get the heart of God? I'm not talking about up here in the head. I'm talking about in here in the heart. 
Hey, last thing that I thought of. Am I a joy killer? Do I rejoice over the things that God rejoices over? In fact, that sets us up for these next three parables. Because these, par- these coming parables are all about what gives God great joy. That's the lesson that we need to take home as we begin to study these parables. You see, the things that give God great joy should be the same things that give us great joy. And we should rejoice over those same things. And that's the lesson that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes needed to hear. I think that that's also the lesson too. I think it's a timely lesson for us as a church to hear. Let's rejoice when somebody sits in your seat. Let's rejoice when somebody new comes together. And it's fitting because we've, we've intentionally coordinated our baptism service, our new membership service, and our dedication service to be during this series because we need to rejoice and celebrate together because God is at work and He's doing things and it's obvious that God is not dead, that He's still fully alive despite what Nietzsche said. God is not asleep, He's not dead, He's active and He's working right here in our personal lives, right here in Praise Point. So do we rejoice over those things? I think that those are, for me, some good questions that I needed to ask myself, and I'm hoping that you can ask yourself, because that's going to set the tone for the series that we're going to begin to study. Let me personally invite you one last thing. On the back of your handout, there's some texts, there's, there's some, uh, some addresses that you'll find in your Bible, Let me encourage you this week to kind of go through those. Those will further help solidify in your heart and mind the things that makes God rejoice. And I hope that it will kind of add to today's lesson and help us begin to develop that right heart joy attitude. Lastly, there's a couple questions in there. I think that you know, I find that there's a lot of people who want to have some spiritual conversations, but they just need a little bit of a kickstart. They need something just to get those conversations started, and that's the point of some of those. Maybe have that conversation with your family, with your friends, in your small groups, your Sunday school classes. I think that those are good things for us to begin to think through.